Well, as we get set up here tonight, the order's a little different, but uh, we're going to be getting into John 16 tonight. John 16 talks about uh, this reference to the, there's pain in childbearing, but then there's the joy when you hold your child. There's the joy on the other side. There's the joy when the child has been delivered, and, and, and we truly believe that what it says in Psalm 127, our children are a blessing from the Lord. Right? There's no doubt about it. Children are a blessing. Steph and I just started uh, parenthood about a year ago. Last Easter, we had Raj uh, just about a month at that point. And man, let me tell you, parenthood is awesome. Children are a blessing. They're our greatest joy. And uh, maybe you're thinking too, well, worship was kind of short, right? Easter, I want to sing. I want to celebrate. I do too, right? Easter is a celebration. Amen? Easter, we want to celebrate that Jesus is risen. And when I think of celebrations, I think of of parties, I don't think about somebody standing up and giving a soliloquy for 30 minutes, right? Or, or even preaching. I think about music. And at the heart of our service tonight, we're going to go back into worship. Come on, for a, a nice big chunk of worship, praising Jesus, praising God tonight. But I want to start tonight. I'm just going to give about a 15-minute thought before worship and a 15-minute thought to close afterwards. But tonight I want to start in Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under your pew. But in Psalm chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, David says, I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, oh, Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. And weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. It's a pretty profound statement right there early on where he says, you brought me up from the grave, O Lord. Right? And of course, here he's speaking metaphorically. He didn't actually die and come back to life, but he's also speaking prophetically. Because we know that Easter celebrates Jesus being brought up from the grave. Resurrection from the grave to life. But tonight I actually want to look at the last verse, verse 5, where it says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Because between Good Friday and between Easter Sunday, there's a whole day that often doesn't get much attention. Not a whole lot of services given to it. But between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is a day that in the church is known as Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday. And really, if you look in Scripture, this was a day, it was a somber day, a day of grief a day of questions, a day when the disciples were thinking, man, this, this wasn't how it was supposed to play out. It wasn't supposed to be like this. It was a day when hope seemed endangered, if not borderline extinct, where faith had been dealt a blow by discouragement, confusion, and doubt. And I hit on that not just because we're meeting here on Saturday night, but if you look at our lives, you look at our world right now, we're living in a cosmic Saturday where we're thinking, man, is this how it's supposed to be? There's sorrows. There's griefs, there's struggles, it's Saturday. There's chronic pain, there's physical, spiritual brokenness, it's Saturday. If death's been destroyed, why do we still die? Right? That sounds great in theory, but for something that's been destroyed, it sure seems like death is doing just fine. But I love in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says to Timothy that Jesus destroyed death. And I love that verse. And I love it not just because Jesus sounds like Rambo, destroying death. No, that, uh, the word destroyed, it's a funky tense in the Greek where it's speaking to a future event in the past tense. 
right? You can only do that when you're God, speaking to something that's happening in the future in the past tense. Like, I don't know if you like basketball, if you've ever played the game of horse, where you have to call your shot before you shoot it. And then if you make it, the other person has to replicate the shot. When, when, when God calls a shot, it's happening. He can talk about the future in the past tense. Death will be defeated. It's destroyed. One day it will be no more. But on Good Friday, we also recognize that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. So we know that he did a work that is a wrap. It's over. It's forever finished, and no matter whatever the enemy might do, it can't be undone. So what was finished on the cross? Jesus was revealing God to us, for one. That God revealed himself to man. Paul says the son of God, Jesus Christ, he's the visible image of the invisible God. Right? You want to see God? Open up your Bible to the Gospels. This was God in the flesh. You want to hear God speak? Open up the Gospels. Start reading those red letters, the words of Jesus. That's God speaking his word. But then we also see, secondly, that Jesus was not just revealing God to us. He was reconciling God to us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here at the cross, he's justifying us before God and canceling the wages of sin, which are death. So in a way, yes, death is defeated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, concerning death, he was a a pastor and a theologian, and eventually he was executed as punishment for pushing back against the Nazi regime, and he was writing uh, shortly before his impending execution. And he said, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. When you're facing death, you can only write that if you truly believe Jesus has, has beat death and conquered the grave. But he didn't stop there either. He said, I believe that God can and will generate good out of everything. Think about Romans 8.28, right? Even out of the worst evil. And for that, he needs people who will allow that everything happens, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. And I want to look tonight at this thought, and just these next couple minutes, this thought of a pattern for good. Because in Holy Week, culminating in Easter, it gives us a pattern. And it's a pattern present throughout our Bibles. It's a pattern present around us in in nature. You look at the the four seasons. You look at the tide that goes down and then it comes back up. You look at the sun that goes down and then it comes back up. And it's a pattern in our very lives. And this pattern, if we recognize it, can weave purpose into our pain. But do we recognize it? Do we heed it? Because we, like the disciples on our Saturday, we're looking for purpose. We're looking for a pattern. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for clarity. But like a VHS, y'all remember those? VHS you used to get from Blockbuster. Maybe you had siblings where you pull it out and it's like half finished. You got to rewind it just to get back to the beginning. We have to rewind. Because throughout his ministry, especially during Holy Week, leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus foreshadows his death for the disciples because he knew they would have to grapple with this reality and this loss and there would be grief. And in John, we get something that's known as his farewell discourse. And it happens in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses, I'm going to read 16 through 22. 16 through 22. He's speaking to the disciples, and he says, In a little while, you won't see me anymore. But a little while after that, you'll see me again. So some of the disciples asked each other, What does he mean when he says, In a little while, you won't see me, but then you'll see me? And I'm going to the Father. What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about it, so he said, and even before I go there, pause. Maybe tonight you're in the disciples' shoes. 
You're grappling to understand. Maybe you're wrestling with doubt. You're thinking this whole Easter thing, I don't understand it. I'm still wrestling with how could this have ever happened. You know, just like here, Jesus knew the questions the disciples were asking. God knows your heart. God wants to meet with you tonight and speak to you. So I pray that tonight, God, I pray you would speak to each heart, each doubt, God, each discouragement, God, each thought, Lord God, that you know each one of us had, the things we're wrestling with, grappling with in life, God, you know and you care. God, so I pray tonight through your word and through this sermon, you'd speak to each one of us, just as Jesus speaks to his disciples here. In Jesus' name. But again, in verse 19, it says, he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said, in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you'll see me again. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering through the pains of labor. When a child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. You know, just this week I heard a weatherman say, he's trying to advertise for uh, what he does, and he said reliable weather forecasting can add some stability to an uncertain world. And I laughed, like basically out loud at my TV, because if my... Uh, stability is dependent on his weather forecast, I might as well give up all hope, right? But Jesus, when he forecasts the changes that are coming because of his resurrection, we can take it to the bank. And what he says here in this passage is your sorrow will turn to joy. There's no doubt about it. And to illustrate this, Jesus uses the analogy and this pattern of a woman in labor. The suffering of labor followed by the joy of having delivered your child and holding your child for the first time. And this is an analogy that the Old Testament prophets had used again and again. You look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Micah. They all used this analogy. Sorrow turned to joy. Pain given purpose. And this isn't just some pattern. It's an Easter promise for our Saturday experience, our Saturday existence, as we live out our lives, that our sorrows, we will have them. They'll turn to joy. Or as Jesus says, or excuse me, David says in Psalm 30, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Right? Jesus was arrested at night. And when Jesus died on the cross, it says in Luke that, man, this sun, it stopped shining. It got dark. And darkness plays a part in the pattern we see throughout Scripture. See, if you look at the the Jewish calendar, the Jewish day actually began at sunset. That's when they started their day. It wasn't just the holidays. Every day in their tradition began at sundown. So one of the first things you do at the start of your day, somebody got to John 16 just now. (laughs) So one of the first things you do at the start of your day in Jewish culture was to lay down, drift out of consciousness, and rise again with the rising of the sun. It established patterns that we see were put in place even in Genesis 1 and throughout creation. That the first act of God's creation, right, was to bring light out of darkness long before Adam. And as he set up the universe, as he set up the solar system, as he set up earth and its orbit, we would again and again experience darkness eliminated by light. Daily in the Jewish culture. Day began with sundown and darkness, but then light would be eliminated again and again. Dark and then light. Night and then day. The sun's descent followed by ascent. David's perspective of God's goodness, it echoes this arrangement where he says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. How do you see this pattern played out in Scripture? You've got Hannah's barrenness before she was able to bear a child miraculously. You've got uh, Elijah, who before he delivered the rain, there was a drought. 
You've got Elisha who experienced the siege before there was breakthrough. And you've got Elijah and Elisha, both. There's a, a dead beloved son, and they both raised that son back to life, prophetically pointing to what would happen at Easter. And this pattern should inform our perspective on Easter. And this pattern should really, it should inform our perspective on life. Because sometimes in life when we experience struggle, when we experience a descent into darkness, we assume that God is checked out. Man, God's taking a nap. He's just not paying attention. Or ultimately, the enemy would love for us to think he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He isn't good. But Easter should forever affect our perspective in a way that we recognize when there's a struggle, God's at work. Right? What if, what if we stopped assuming that a struggle is a sign that God's off the job and we started recognizing that a struggle is often a sign that God's at work, that God's doing something? Jesus suffering on the cross in a way that none of us hopefully ever will physically or spiritually. He said again on that cross, it is finished. Not I am finished. Right? God wasn't done with him. Not God is finished with me. He didn't give up hope. He said it is finished. The suffering is over. It served its purpose. Its purpose is served. It's not the end. It's not the destination. The pain is a part of a greater pattern. Right? This descent that precedes the ascent and the ascension and the resurrection. Jesus understood this pattern, burial before resurrection, descent before ascent. In John 12, 24, he says, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains only a seed. But if you're buried in darkness, seeds grow in darkness before they ever break into the light. Seeds grow in darkness. Darkness may last for the night, but light comes in the morning. Corey Ten Boom said, when the train goes through a tunnel and the world gets dark, do you jump out? Of course not. You sit and trust the engineer to get you through. If I could have the worship team come up, I've shared this story before. We're going to go back into worship. I've shared this story before. Pastor Fred and I, we do staff lunches on Thursday with the staff. But for whatever reason, this week it was just me and Pastor Fred. And we went to a, a restaurant in Hampton. And the waitress had just moved from Texas. And she lived in Norfolk, worked in Hampton. So me, I'm interested. My commute, I got to go from down here to Newport News. So I go through the tunnel daily. But I, we asked her, like, what do you think about going through the tunnel, right, under all that water? Like, what did you think when you first did it? And she was like, what? Like, you drive through the tunnel every day. What do you, what do you feel when you go under all that water? She's just, what are you talking about? And God bless her, somehow she didn't realize that every day she was going under this tunnel, you know, surrounded by the ocean, right? She didn't realize it. And it was funny just seeing the, the switch flip in her mind and her mind be blown as she realized, wow, I do that daily. I don't know if she texts a lot. I don't know what she does when she drives. I don't know if she does like intense podcasts, whatever. But that next day and those next weeks, you know, pet peeve of anybody that travels through the tunnel is the people that get scared. Maybe it's their first time they slam their brakes on because they realize they're going through the tunnel. I get some amens now. I don't know for sure, but I would assume that she didn't slam on her brakes because she'd done it before. She knew that this wasn't some descent into an abyss, but there was a descent and there was an ascent on the other side. It wasn't a destination underwater where everything was going to end. No, there was light on the other side. There's life on the other side. She had done it before. This is what Easter does for us. Jesus has shown us that death, again, is just a supreme festival on the road to freedom. That, that death is just it's a tunnel to the other side. There's something on the other side. There's, there's light that comes with the morning. There's life that comes with the morning. What the devil tries to make a destination is simply a descent before God lifts us up again. Even death. On Saturday and Easter week, Jesus was buried, died and buried, but it was 
Darkness before light. Joy comes in the morning. Life comes in the morning. Light came in the morning. And the pattern, it foreshadows a promise that a day is coming when there will be no more darkness. The Bible says in Revelation, there will be no sun or moon for the Lord Christ will be the light. That's our eternal Sunday. But now we stand in Saturday. And the Saturday on the eve of Easter reminds us this reality that rejoicing is coming. It says in Psalm 30, joy comes with our sorrows, our grief will eventually turn to joy. And I love that in John chapter 20, verse 20, as John's writing his gospel, he records how they're in the upper room and Jesus appears to him and, and he says that there's joy. They felt joy. Jesus' promise, the check he wrote, of course they cashed it, right? He called his shot, it happened. They felt joy when they saw Jesus again. And what Easter reminds us is Easter reminds us that, hey, sorrow is a part of life. Grief, it's a part of life, but defeat is not definitive. Failure is not final. Pain, it can serve a purpose. It's not an Easter song, but there's a powerful song. It's by an artist named Sandra McCracken. It speaks to this. It says, if it's not okay, then it's not the end. And this is not okay, so I know that this is not, this is not the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end, and this is not okay, so I know this is not the end because she recognized this pattern, that our, our Saturday, maybe those dark seasons in our life, they foreshadow the fulfillment of a promised purpose. And we're gonna worship, and we're gonna praise Jesus, our risen Savior, and then we're gonna come back, we're gonna talk about this purpose. But here we have this pattern handed to us by Jesus in John 16, handed to us by David in Psalm 30. He says, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. But what do we do now? in a world where there's darkness, still in Saturday. If you go just two verses before that, two verses before that, before the dawn is broke, he says, sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. We faithfully sing because we know God is faithful. That even in the seasons we might find ourselves in, where it might feel dark, might be surrounded by grief, we realize that our God is a faithful God and we can still praise him. There's still 10,000 reasons to sing because Easter's not something we have to wait for tomorrow. It happened thousands of years ago. It's a reality. Jesus is risen and he deserves our praise and he deserves our worship. So I know we're gonna celebrate tomorrow, but it's not something we wait for. Again, it happened already. We can praise God for it now. So can we stand? And Tara's gonna lead us again into worship. God, I pray that for each person here, God, in this Easter season, no matter what we're walking through now, you would remind us of this pattern. God, that so often you, you, we descend into something, God, so that we can ascend on the other side. God, we thank you that you've surrounded us by it in creation. You, we see it in the Easter narrative. And God, I pray that tonight it would breathe hope into our hearts. It would breathe faith into our hearts where there's been doubt. God, it would breathe expectation even now as we're about to go back into worship and dig back into your word that you can meet us here. Like those disciples in John 16 that had questions. God, maybe we're here with questions. We're here with doubts. We're here with discouragements. Lord God, I thank you that you know not just the number of hairs on our heads. You know the thoughts that go on in our head. You don't just know you care. You love so much that you care so much that you sent your son to die on a cross and rise from the grave and go through Holy Week, Easter week for us. God, so we praise you in this place. Jesus, we praise you in this place. You're the name above every name. And God, we bow our knee to you and profess that to the glory of God the Father here as we go back into worship. Come on, that's good. But you know what else is good? Pizza. Raj, like most people, loves pizza. My son, two years old, 
uh, grew up on Indian food over there in India. We adopted him, and we introduced him to pizza, and he loves it. Steph is gluten-free, so maybe like, yeah, I can't eat it. Maybe you're lactose intolerant, but most of us, right, we love pizza. And uh, Raj, he's got a special technique, because usually when you think about pizza, you, you start with the, the point first. Maybe if you're a little odd, you, you start with the crust first. I do that sometimes. No, no shame. But Raj has a technique where he picks it up with one hand by the crust, and then with his other hand, supports the back. And like an assassin going for the kill, he goes for center mass. Just a bite out of the toppings and cheese just in the middle of the slice of pizza. I didn't realize that was even an option until I adopted Raj. That you don't have to start with the point, you don't have to start with the crust, you can just lift it vertical, like a whole other dimension of pizza eating and just go right at the center. And we wouldn't maybe describe it like this, but how often do we take the Bible like this? A bite out of the center, a chapter here, passage there. Maybe devotions are pointing us to these passages. Maybe they're being preached to us. But for the most part, our, our consumption of the Bible is a bite here, a fragment over there. We wouldn't do that with any other book. Right? I was an English major at William & Mary. So my senior year, taking these senior level English classes, there were like three of them. They all expected me to read like a 400-page book and write a 10-page paper on it weekly. Each one of those classes, like I didn't have anything going on, any other classes or anything else going on in my life. So I learned to skim. But even then, I didn't just randomly jump in and try to find a paragraph here or a paragraph there. I, I learned techniques. But you try to find the pattern, the, the, the themes, the, 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 what the major themes of that book is. And if I could just encourage you tonight, that's such a powerful video because it reminds us there's power when you take the Bible from beginning to end and begin to see how everything in Scripture is a pattern. Everything in Scripture points. And what it points to, like that video was saying, is Jesus Christ. Everything in Scripture is either preparation for Jesus, a presentation of Jesus like we have in the Gospels, or it's participating in the work of Jesus like we get throughout the rest of the New Testament. And I love that it points to the true and better this and that, Abel, Moses, Noah, Esther, all these different characters. But tonight as we wrap up for the last 20 minutes, I want to look at the truer and better Jonah. Because Jesus, in Matthew 12, he points to Jonah. And just as we talked about descent leading to ascent, Jonah being delivered through the belly of a whale should be a reminder that seasons that feel like death or feel like we're going to die, sometimes that's God delivering us to our purpose and our calling. But in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, it says, uh, Jesus replied to these leaders who asked for another sign. He replied to them, the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the son of man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. You know, as, as one theologian puts it, as I was studying this passage, he says that, that Jonah was Jesus' primary metaphor for transformation. Because this pattern we talked about, this pattern of darkness and then light, descent and then ascent, the, the pattern is for a purpose. It's not for no reason. And the pattern is for new life, for resurrection, for transformation. You know, we looked at those examples like Hannah and Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. You look at the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. It says stuff like, the first will be last. Those that want to be greatest among all must be the servants of all. Lower themselves and be the servants of all. And then to, to double down on that, he says, hey, the highest form of love, the greatest love you can have is to lay down your life for your friends. The love he walked out. That's why it's so powerful. You look at the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In each example, there's dissent before ascent. Why? <laughs> because dissent makes room for ascent in our lives. You know, we're ultimately transformed. If you look at your life through descending and ascending again and again, seasons, like, again, the seasons we see in nature, the rising and setting of the sun, that's how we grow. That's how we're transformed. I was, uh, again, I was, at, I was at William and Mary, and it was my senior year at age 21 where a, a, a female invited me out to a hip-hop concert at a church, not telling me it was about to be a conference, and I got rocked, saved, transformed at that conference. And I started going to this church. It's now called Life Church up in Williamsburg. Like, if you're going to a church and you're not getting involved, I don't know what you're doing. I signed up for everything. Anything that ended in retreat, I was signing up for. I'd sign up for the women's retreat. They'd have to tell me no because I wanted to be going to everything. I was also single, but I wanted to be going to everything, right? And I remember I went to one retreat where the, there was an exercise. You were supposed to uh, take a sheet of paper and, and kind of, uh, this is math. I was an English and art major, although art kind of a little bit. You were supposed to do like a graph of your life, the peaks and the valleys, and then explain that as a group to one another. So I was 21. I had basically a V, right? Parents raised me well. Parents did a great job. Teenage years to 21 was just a descent into addiction and brokenness. And then at 21, my life changed forever and I had this upward trajectory. Mine was like a V. But there were people at this retreat two times my age, some three times my age. They needed a scroll. Like, and these people took it serious, right? Theirs looked like a heartbeat, you know, up and down, up and down. And they would explain how, you know, this is when we separated, my wife and I. This is when we came back together. This is when I lost so-and-so. This is when God did this in my life. And through their life, you could see peaks and valleys, descent and then ascent, darkness and then light. And through that, they would explain, this is, how, this is what God did in me. This is how God transformed me. This is how I grew to know this about God. Or this is how I grew to know this about myself. It was a powerful exercise. And for some cosmic reason, it seems like there's no better recipe for growth and transformation than descent and then ascent. And I think it's probably because if we had a choice, we'd just stay where we're comfortable. You probably get a straight line, but not just straight, probably would just descend slowly because you don't grow when you're comfortable. You don't change when you're comfortable. Change and comfort rarely, if ever, happen simultaneously. Like, I think we'd all say we want God's power in our lives, the power to overcome, the power for breakthrough, the power for perseverance in tough seasons. But resurrection power is rarely produced in pretty places. Right, you look at Easter weekend, there was the cross and there was the grave. Sometimes the very thing that produces pain in our life is simultaneously producing God's power in our hearts and our spirits. And I'm not talking about some divine masochism, but, but look at the symbols we celebrate. I wear this cross daily. When I was a teenager, uh, one of my friend's moms gave this to me because I was a, a rough teenager. She was probably praying for me nightly. And she gave me this cross. Jesus is on it on one side. There's the 14 stations of the cross on the other. I wear this every day. You know, if it wasn't for Jesus, that'd be pretty weird. Like, you'd think I was a serial killer. Like, the cross was the, one of the worst forms of torture and death ever made by mankind. It was so inhumane, it was meant to strip man of his humanity. And what was once a symbol of pain has been transformed into a symbol of God's power. It's a symbol of hope. We put it on our churches. There's one in the front lawn, right? I wear it as jewelry. Again, if it weren't for Jesus, that would just be odd and a little weird. But because of Jesus, it's a symbol of God's power and his power to transform and his power to redeem. As you know, if I came across an empty tomb or an empty grave without the reality of Jesus Christ, I'd just be like, well, somebody hasn't been buried yet. 
Nobody has descended into that and been buried yet. But now with the reality of Jesus, I see an empty tomb or a picture of an empty tomb, and I begin to reflect on the fact that Jesus, he ascended. He resurrected, and it becomes a a new symbol for us as believers. Man, if Christ can transform these symbols that once communicated death into something hopeful, what can't he transform in our lives? That the enemy would use to communicate condemnation, that the enemy would use to communicate discouragement, that the enemy might use to to communicate doubt. God can use that thing to release power and transformation in our life. Let Christ go to work on those things because he's a redeemer. He's a restorer. He's a resurrector. Again, your destiny, excuse me, your descent, it's not your destination. That's just a piece of the pattern we see again and again. The valley doesn't define you. It can transform you. And whenever you feel crushed, under pressure, pressed, in darkness, you're in a place with potential for powerful transformation. Think about grapes must be crushed to produce wine. Diamonds, they form under pressure. Olives, they're pressed to release oil. Seeds, again, they grow in darkness and buried. And, man, as I was preparing this sermon, if you guys go home with one thing that, man, remember this. Sometimes what feels dead and buried, oh, it's buried, but it's planted. It's not deceased, but God has planted that. It feels lifeless. It feels dead. It feels buried, just like Jesus felt dead on Saturday night. But it's a seed, and it's been planted. And God can use it for his purpose, and God can bring fruit out of it. What feels dead in your life, what feels beyond hope, what feels buried, the pattern of Easter shows us that what sometimes feels buried and hopeless, God can still use to bring to life, bear fruit and transform. What's planted can bear fruit. Pain can still have a purpose. Again, whenever you feel crushed, buried, or in darkness, you're in a place with potential for powerful transformation. Maybe in life right now you're like, man, yeah, the enemy is applying a lot of pressure. I feel stressed. I feel anxious. Again, you press olives to produce oil. Oil is indicative of anointing. God can use that. Maybe you would say, man, the enemy is throwing a lot of dirt on me. Feels like I'm being buried. Feels like I'm being overwhelmed. Seeds grow only when they're buried. And a buried seed can produce fruit. What feels dead and buried so often is only planted, and God wants to use that. God would say, man, the enemy, it feels like he's throwing dirt on you. Well, let him keep throwing. Because the enemy thought that Jesus was down for the count and buried, but this new and better Jonah was only going to go to the heart of earth for three days. He was due for his ascent. And because of that, we can have hope for ours. This is the hope of Easter. This is the gospel. And because of the reality of Easter, we may be hurt, we may be in pain, we may be in brokenness, but Easter teaches us, again, that this is a part of life. You're going to have descents into sorrow. You're going to have descents into grief. It's a part of life, but the Bible teaches us the reason, the purpose, not just of the ascent, but the reason we're even there, because of sin, because of the fall. This descent from our intended creation. You know, we talked about this a, a, a couple weekends ago. Yes, we're fallen, but even just the fact we're fallen means that we were once in a high place and we've descended. We were created for relationship with God. We were created for intimate communion with our creator and our king, but we've fallen. And let me be clear. Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we, we, we talk about it like we need to be saved from negative thinking or we need to be saved from guilt or shame or we need to be saved from a feeling of meaninglessness or purposelessness. No, that's all part of it, but those are symptoms. What we need to be saved from is sin, our sin, my sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But again, the fact that you've fallen means you fell from somewhere. 
We were created for a relationship with God. Sin broke that. That's why Jesus came. The heart of the gospel is this, that Jesus descended from the throne room of heaven. We get this beautiful description in Philippians 2, to lay his life down for humanity. He too descended all the way from heaven, the throne room of heaven, to the lowest form of death, the cross and the grave. There was no greater descent, but for Jesus, it wasn't a fall. It was a choice, a willful sacrifice to pay for our fall. But his ascent was just as remarkable as his descent. You continue to read in Philippians 2, and it says that Jesus has exalted him to the highest place. You can ascend no higher, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And my prayer for tonight has been the same prayer for every service we've ever hosted here, that by the end of service, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because it's better to do it now than to do it when it's too late. And you're in his presence and you realize, I, I, I should have. I should have. So if that's you tonight, I pray that tonight would be that night. And I'd love to pray for you in just a moment. We're going to have people in the back that can pray for you. But again, Easter means that brokenness doesn't have to define you, doesn't have to be your destination. Shame and guilt, they don't have to be permanent residents. The same resurrection power that sparked his ascent can spark ours. That's the good news. It's the promise of Easter. And you know, I started with this illustration of the odd way that Raj eats pizza, but there's another odd eating that I, I want to reflect on, and it's basically eating air. I was watching coverage on a man that was doing free diving, which is diving without a tank, going as deep as possible, holding your breath for insane amounts of time, and that's free diving, no tank. You're just holding your breath. Like Jonah should have had this training. Too bad he didn't invest in that kind of training before he decided to run away. But this guy, he was preparing to break the world record, 331 feet down. That's two statues of liberty. That's a football field down. And don't forget, not just I could go down 331 feet. I'd be dead. But what's important is you don't just go down. You got the air to come back up, right? So he's doing all kinds of weird yoga positions, taking these really deep breaths, and he's making this gulping, like swallowing motion, sound. Looks weird, looks odd. But what he was doing is making room in his lungs for more oxygen. I didn't even know that was possible. I knew you could eat salad. The next day you're going to eat a lot because it stretches your stomach. I don't know if you could stretch your lungs, right? Because I like to eat more than I like to dive really deep. But that's a rabbit trail. and I no, There we go. His trainer, he explained it like this. He said he's going to a very deep, very dark place. He needs to take as much with him, oxygen, as he can. He was going to descend. And he needed the oxygen stored to ascend again. And again, I'd remind you, Easter reminds us that there, there may be dark places ahead of us. There are going to be challenging days ahead of us, but we get to fill not our lungs, but our hearts on Easter. We get to fill our hearts with hope so that when we go, we can descend and ascend again. We get to fill our hearts on Easter with faith. We get to fill our hearts on Easter with love. We get to fill our hearts on Easter with expectancy. We get to fill our hearts on Easter with passion. We get to fill our hearts on Easter with perseverance so that as we descend, we can ascend again. It's the beauty of Easter. And if I could have the worship team come up, I want to close with a passage out of Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. And again, we get this imagery of pregnancy. It says, all around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. And then as it says on the screen, we're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. 
That's why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We're enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, the more joyful our expectancy. I don't know what season you're in. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know that tonight, because of Easter, God wants to give us a joyful expectancy. In spite of what you're going through, joyful expectancy. In spite of what happened in 2017, joyful expectancy. In spite of what dissent you've already felt this year in 2018, a joyful expectancy. We live in Saturday, but Sunday's coming. You're not defined by the hell you seem to be going through. You're defined by the heaven you're going to. And again, in John 20, 20, that can fill you with joy. Jesus says, hey, your sorrow will turn to joy. And that promise was cashed in the disciples' life. It says they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Sorrow turned to joy. You might say, man, it would take a miracle for me to believe that. Good news. <laughs> Jesus is that miracle. He rose from the grave for me and for you. And maybe today, again, it feels like you're stuck in a Saturday. It's a mess. Again, resurrection power so often isn't produced in pretty places. That's good news. Here's more good news. It's less than 72 hours between the cross and the empty grave. It was less than three days between the worst day in all of humanity and arguably the best day in all of humanity. God doesn't need time to work his way up to something. God can just break through. Keep believing for your breakthrough. Be faithful. Press on. And the longer you wait, the enemy would love for you to settle into despondency. Like, this is it. This is my destination. This is my life. Might as well settle in here, the bottom of my tunnel. But God has something on the other side. Where the enemy would love for you to feel despondency, he wants us to have joyful expectancy because of what Jesus did at the cross and what Jesus did at Easter. So if we could stand, we're going to go back into worship. We're going to sing the song Tremble. It talks about how Jesus overcomes this darkness. But even as we, we're about to go into worship, I, I want to have an opportunity to, for the Holy Spirit to minister. Because I'm talking about all this, and maybe you just sound like, well, the pattern sounds nice. Like that pattern sounds really nice, descent into ascent, because my life right now feels like more descent and more descent, and that's just life. But if that's you tonight, God wants to meet you where you're at. In your disappointment, if you're honest, you might be discouraged with God, frustrated. God knows those questions. God knows what you're grappling with. God knows what you're wrestling with. Maybe it's not even something going on in your life. It's something going on in the life of one you love. Their health, your health, mental or physical, whatever it is, there are these seasons in life where it seems like I'm just descending. And if I'm honest, it feels like I'm snowballing. But God wants to meet with you here. Tonight, if that's you, and you would say, man, I, I've been on a descent. I'm ready for my ascent. I'm ready for the other side. I'm ready for this tunnel to start pointing up where I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. If that's you and you need hope, you need faith, you need God to help you in your unbelief, there's no shame in that. If you could just raise your hand, I want to pray for you right now. If you would say, I've been on a descent. I'm ready for my ascent. I'm ready to, to see hope again, have faith again, not just for myself, but for the situations in my life. God, I pray for these people with raised hands. God, I thank you that the pattern of Easter promises an ascent, promises that, that when we see Jesus, whether it's the goodness of God in this life or Jesus on the other side, that our sorrow will turn to joy. God, that you promised that pattern, and it is a promise. And God, I thank you that it serves a purpose.
God, to transform us, to make us into that new creation where the old continues to pass away. And that's why people like James can say, hey, rejoice when you go through trials. That's why Paul can say in Romans, when you're going through something, man, trust that God can grow something in you. And I pray that that will be the testimony in each life with hands raised, Lord God. Right now, it's dark. But I thank you that scripture says joy and rejoicing comes in the morning. And when we doubt that, we can reflect on Easter and what was happening on Saturday so long ago. Seemed like Jesus was dead and buried. But in just hours, he would rise again. Jesus, I thank you for your resurrection power. So often it's not produced in, in pretty places. It's produced in pain. It's produced in the darkness. God, those seeds that you would have take root. <laughs> Let them take root tonight. God, let fruit come from this evening where five years from now, ten years from now, we'll look back on what we're walking through now and say, yeah, I remember that Easter because I began to experience an ascent and hope that I didn't have before. And I can have it because of what Jesus did on the cross, what he did to the grave, robbing death, where now it's, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a festival on the road to freedom. But you know, if you're here tonight as well, Again, I've been praying for this service that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because there is, death is like a festival on the road to freedom if you know Jesus. And if you've never stepped back into relationship with your creator, your king, your savior, and you know like I did when I was 21 and at that conference, my heart was beating out of my chest, I knew God was calling me calling me home like the prodigal son. If that's you tonight, come on, we're gonna, we're gonna go back into worship. We have people in the back that would love to pray for you, give you resources, pray for you. Same with myself right up here in the front row, but the birches are in the back. We wanna let God minister in this moment. We're gonna go back into worship. We're gonna close in praise, but come on, let's close in prayer if you need it. Whether it's to bend the knee of your heart to Jesus Christ for the first time or simply saying, I need that ascent. I need that hope. I want that deposit here tonight. And come on, we'd love to pray for you. But let's go back into worship as a congregation and then we'll close in just a few minutes.